0: We are in the, the third week of a series on the book of Esther. Um, if you've missed any of the past couple of weeks, I'd encourage you to go to the website. Uh, the, the messages are there. You can get them in the Resource Center as well, but they're free on the website. Uh, be sure to go back and, and, uh, and see those, especially the first one because it will give you the big picture. As I shared last week, we're not going to be looking at this uh, book verse by verse, But rather, we're going to be taking it by theme. Uh, This this book has a number of major themes that emerge, and and I want us to focus on those themes from one of the greatest stories ever told. This morning, I want us to reflect specifically on a theme that emerges in the lives of two of the main characters, Mordecai and Haman, and particularly Haman. Now, if you do want to know where the events that we're mostly going to be looking at today take place, is in the third chapter of Esther. Like I said, we're not going to look at the details, but if you want to just put your finger there, go home and read it later, you will see where the events take place that will form the basis of this theme. And I just want to begin by looking at the two men, Mordecai and Haman. Let's start with Mordecai. What do we know about Mordecai from the book itself? There are a lot of things that are speculated about Mordecai, but I mean, what do we actually know from the book of Esther about this man named Mordecai? Well, the first thing we know is that he's a Jew. We know that because almost every time his name is mentioned, that fact is mentioned along with it. It's almost like his full name was Mordecai the Jew. Uh, these are two things that go hand in hand. Uh, they're not separated anywhere in the book. Second, we know that Mordecai has adopted a young cousin whose name is Esther. Of course, the Esther that the book is named after. Now, we don't know all the details of that story except for one thing. We know that she has lost both of her parents. Both of her parents are dead. And uh, Mordecai has uh, embraced her, brought her into his home, and made her his daughter. We, we don't know for sure if he did it out of a sense of duty or if they, he really did have a deep sense of compassion and love for his young cousin. But whatever the story is, the, the writer didn't give us that detail. Apparently he didn't think it was that important. But we do know that Mordecai has adopted Esther and made her his daughter. The third thing that we know is that Mordecai held some kind of office in the king's court. Now it was not, it was not a high office at all. It was a, it was a relatively low office um, we know that because when Mordecai uncovers a plot to assassinate the king, he has no direct access to the king and he 's not honored when he brings it to the king 's attention, so it was a low position, but we do know that he had a position in the king 's court because when the Bible speaks of someone sitting at the gates, it, the gates were where the it, the gates were almost like a uh, a public courthouse. It's where you know the public uh, work took place. It's where people brought their disputes for judgment. So those who sat at the gates of the king were those who had some role in the in the public reality. And, and so Mordecai was one who regularly sat at the gates. So he has some kind of position in the king's court. Now, finally. We have some reason to believe that Mordecai, though he probably was a good man, a decent man, was not a particularly good Jew. Now that might come as a, a bit of a surprise to you, but let me explain why I would say that. Uh, first of all, you have to ask yourself this question. Why was Mordecai living in Susa, which was the capital of the Persian Empire? You've got to understand that 50 years earlier... Cyrus had defeated Nebuchadnezzar, and after some time, 50 years earlier, Cyrus had determined that he was going to allow the Jews to return to their homeland. 50,000 of them returned immediately, and many, many more had returned to their beloved homeland in the 50 years since that decree was passed, but not Mordecai. Mordecai was still in Persia. Now, again, the, the, the writer didn't give us all the details to that story. Some people have speculated that it was because you know, he had grown comfortable in Susa. It was a, it was a wealthy city. It was a, lots of luxuries. He had a prominent role in the city. And he had just gotten comfortable living among the Persians. And he had lost his passion for his homeland. But you have to ask yourself the question. If he had been a faithful Jew, surely there would have been something in him that desired to go back to his homeland. Not, not only that, but uh, we know that Mordecai's family was a prominent family in Jerusalem. Uh, when, when, the, when Nebuchadnezzar captured them and brought them to Babylon, his family was mentioned as uh, those who were among the nobles uh, or the, the prominent people of Jerusalem. So he had an even greater reason to love Jerusalem and to want to get back there, but he wasn't there. Furthermore, he, he has a, a, a thoroughly Babylonian name. Do you know where the name Mordecai comes from? It's based on a word called Marduk. Maybe you can remember from your early days of world history. Marduk was the chief god of the Babylonians. Now, Esther also had a pagan name or a foreign name. Esther was her pagan name. Her Israelite name was Hadassah. Now, the, the writer took the time to say that about Esther. But nowhere does he tell us that Mordecai even has a Hebrew name. It seems that Mordecai has compromised or or, or at least made himself very comfortable in the Persian culture. Finally, the last bit of, of evidence that Mordecai was not a particularly faithful Jew is that a number of the things that Mordecai encourages Esther to do would have been unthinkable for a faithful Jew, particularly lying about the fact that she was a Jew. That would have been completely forbidden for a Jew, and yet Mordecai encourages her to do that. Well, that's a little bit of what we know about Mordecai. Maybe that gives you a bit of a different picture of Mordecai than the one you might have had simply reading quickly through the book. What about Haman? Well, like Mordecai, Haman was, not all, was also not of Persian descent. Um, Haman... It's called specifically by the writer of the book an Agagite, an Agagite, which connects him directly to Agag, an early king of the Amalekites, the same Amalekites that threatened Israel hundreds of years earlier, or many years earlier, uh, when Saul was king. Uh, The Amalekites came against the Israelites, they threatened to destroy them God spoke to, his, uh, to Saul through Samuel and said, I'm going to give you a great victory. And when you get this victory, it's very important that you destroy all of the Amalekites. Well, that's, that's part of the story, uh, the backstory. What we, we know about him is he's from the Amalekites. We also know that Haman was a man of tremendous wealth. Uh, we know that because later in the story, Haman offers to give the king 10,000 talents. I think I said two weeks ago, 10,000 talents is roughly 375 tons of silver. So this man had immense, immense wealth. Uh, We also know that Haman served in a high role within the king's court. Mordecai in a low role, but Haman in a very high, in fact, extremely high. Right after Esther became queen, he was promoted to the second highest rank in the entire empire. Haman was second only to the king. He held what today would probably be called the position of prime minister. A prime minister. So that was his role uh, in, in the country during that day. Now, some commentators speculate that Haman must have bought the position. But quite frankly, in the book itself, there's no evidence of that. Nowhere does it indicate that Haman bought it. It seems that for whatever reasons, the king thought he was worthy of the title and gave it to him. However we do get a strong hint that Haman was not very popular in the city. And the reason for that is that the king had to pass a law that required people to bow in his presence whenever he came on the scene. If he had been truly respected, it wouldn't have been necessary because people normally did that anyway. But the king had passed a law making it a legal mandate that anyone who came into his presence had to bow. Well... It's on that last point that the critical drama of the story unfolds. One day, Haman is passing by the king's gates, and everyone who is there dutifully hits their knees or at least bows before him and recognizes his presence. Everyone, that is, except Mordecai. Mordecai refused to bow. Now, Haman didn't even see it, Uh, or if he did, he didn't notice. Um, but the king's officials noticed. And so soon after, maybe the next day, they went directly to Mordecai, and they said, Mordecai, what you've done is wrong. Uh, You're going to be in big, big trouble if you don't bow before Haman. Mordecai told them on the spot, I will not bow before this man because I am a Jew. Because I'm a Jew. Now, some people have speculated that the reason he said that is because of his faithfulness to God. This is kind of one of those unseen things that it's not spelled out, but it's there, that Mordecai was faithful to God, and that's why he wouldn't bow to Mordecai. But I want to say, hey, that's not true at all. Because you see, in Persia, they didn't equate the kings, much less the prime minister, with God. They didn't see their leaders as gods. And there was absolutely nothing in the Jewish law that forbid a Jew from bowing in honor to to a foreign potentate. Nothing. I mean, it it happened often in the Old Testament. You see a number of places where prominent leaders of the Jewish people bowed in respect of foreign leaders, and and there was no guilt or shame, and God expressed no uh, uh, anger over that. So whatever caused Mordecai not to bow... It wasn't because he thought it would be an offense to God. Well, after a short time, Haman was once again passing by the king's gate. And just as he promised to the the king's officials, when Haman passed by, everyone bowed except Mordecai. Mordecai refused to bow. And so this time the officials went directly to the king. They go to the king, uh, they don't go to king, they go to Haman. They go straight to Haman, they say, Haman, you need to know that there's one official at the city gate that is disrespecting you every time you walk by. His name is Mordecai, and then they just toss in this juicy little tidbit, he is a Jew. And it is that detail that sends Haman over the edge. I mean, just that one little detail causes Haman to be filled with rage. And and, and, and there's no question here. Let's be very clear. There's no question that what Mordecai did was wrong. It was illegal, and it would have been completely understandable if Haman had pressed charges and seen to it that Mordecai was punished for what he did. But that's not what happens. it's not what happens at all. Haman begins to think not punishment, but death, and not just Mordecai's death, but Haman—I mean, Haman begins to plot the extermination of the entire nation of Israel. Now, you may know this story, and sometimes when we know a story really well, we 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 miss some of the most important details. Don't miss the significance of that. I mean. Uh, A man refused to bow in the presence of the prime minister. And all of a sudden, the prime minister puts in motion a plan to destroy an entire people throughout the entire empire. How do we explain that? How do you make sense of such madness? What would cause a man to react that strongly to something? Here's a little life lesson. Life lesson is that any time a person responds disproportionately to something, you can be sure there's a backstory. There's always a backstory, something in the picture that you don't know, and in this case, there's one heck of a backstory. I actually already touched on part of it. Uh, for Haman, the backstory goes all the way back to when the Amalekites threatened the Israelites. They threatened to attack them. God gave, uh, promised Saul the victory, but said to him, when you get this victory, I want you to destroy everything. Don't let anyone live. Don't keep anything for yourself. Take no plunder. Destroy all of it. And Saul led the Israelites to victory, did mostly what God told him to do, but decided to keep a few of the best heard and, and decided to let the king, whose name was Agag, Live now, now, even there, there's a backstory to the backstory. I mean, God is reacting pretty strongly, right? Why would God say to Saul, I want you to wipe out the whole nation? I mean, that seems kind of extreme, doesn't it? But there's a backstory to the backstory because hundreds of years before that, Moses was leading the people out of Egypt, they were going through the wilderness, they were completely exhausted, weary to the bones. And a group of people come up, sneak up behind them, and attack them from the rear. They were the Amalekites. They were the Amalekites. Now, God gave Joshua a victory over them and and, and saved the Israelites from the Amalekites. But God actually told Moses to write in a book, the day will come when I will destroy this nation. That day came when Saul was king. But Saul's disobedience allowed it to fall short of what God had actually done. So so why does Haman decide to turn a misdemeanor into a life sentence for an entire nation? It's because he's been carrying a grudge his whole life. It doesn't even matter that, that the event that took place didn't involve him at all. It doesn't even matter that it happened 900 years earlier. From childhood, Haman had been taught to hate the Jews with every ounce of his being. With every ounce of his being. And now, he, Haman, had the wealth, the power, and the position, and the influence that went along with it, to avenge his whole people the Amalekites by destroying their uh, their enemy the Israelites and now you know the backstory and by the way you also know the backstory to why Mordecai refused to bow to Haman had nothing to do with idolatry it's because Mordecai hated the Amalekites as much as Haman hated the Israelites this was just purely a show of defiance to a man that he hated simply because of his heritage, of his ethnicity. Now you know the backstory. There's always a backstory, right? I was watching, um, I don't know if you happened to catch this, but uh, last week, the History Channel did a, a three night miniseries called Sons of Liberty. It was about the uh, early stages of the, the uh, Revolutionary War, and I'm a history buff, and I, this, uh, I recorded it and have been watching it over the last week or two, and uh, it's mostly, I mean, one of the key figures in this, you know about all the Revolutionary War figures, but Sam Adams plays a prominent role in this particular movie. He's often not seen just for, for the, the impact that he actually had, but in this movie it becomes very clear. Um, And uh, there's another man that you probably have heard of named John Hancock, right? Uh, John Hancock uh, has the most prominent and was the first signature on the Declaration of Independence. Well, from early days of childhood, we know the name John Hancock. What I did not know, and maybe you didn't either, is that in the early days of the rebellion, John Hancock had divided loyalties. And his loyalties were divided because he was a very, very rich man, one of the richest men in the colonies. And he knew full well that his wealth had come directly because of the British. And so even though he didn't like what was going on in Boston any more than anybody else did, and it it tore at his heart to see the injustices around him, Hancock's loyalties were divided. He hated what he saw, but on the other hand, he had so much to lose. And so you you see this man wrestling with this inner turmoil over what to do. Uh, Sam Adams, by the way, does not think much of John Hancock. Sam Adams is a firebrand. He he is 100% totally committed. He sees the wavering in John Hancock, doesn't think much of him at all, but needs his money. Needs his money to to finance the rebellion. one day, a new general comes into the colonies named General Gage, and General Gage begins to implement the quartering laws, which said that a British soldier could take any, any home he wanted without cause and make it his own. Well, General Gage decided that the best house in Boston was John Hancock's. And so he took John Hancock's house. And suddenly, John Hancock got real interested in the rebellion, uh, and so he decides to, to, to join the rebellion. But even then, you can see that the turmoil is is raging in his, in his soul. There, there's a scene in the movie where Hancock and Samuel Adams are sitting in a barn in Lexington. Uh, they have just learned that the British are on their way to capture them and to take them back uh, for trial in Boston for, for treason. And, and they're sitting there talking, and, and Hancock is wrestling, and... And he can see that Adams is just disgusted with him. I mean, he can just tell Adams is disgusted. And and, and suddenly, he turns to Adam and he says, did I ever tell you that I attended the coronation of King George? He said, no. He said, I was only 24 years old. I went with my uncle, who happened to be one of the most prominent citizens in the colonies. I went there on business, But when they got there, it was the time for the coronation of the king. And because his uncle was so prominent in the colonies, he and his young nephew were invited to the coronation. And you can see his face light up as Hancock begins to talk about what he saw in London. The gold, the the fine fabrics, the pomp and the circumstance. The opulence of the greatest empire on the face of the earth. And then he says this. He said, my uncle was so proud of me. He was so proud that I was there. He bragged about me, Sam. He bragged about me everywhere he went. And suddenly, you saw the backstory. You, you could see why this man was struggling between fighting for injustice, but living for the pride of a beloved uncle. He said, what if he could see me now? You know, pride is a powerful thing, isn't it? I mean, especially when the object of the pride is a young boy or girl and the source of that pride is an influential adult in their lives. Pride is a very powerful thing. As parents, we, we must remember that whatever we're proud of in our kids is likely what is going to get produced in them. I mean, think about it for a minute. Well, how does a... How does a child learn how to hate? I know we're all born into sin, but you know what? No child is born with hatred. How does a child learn how to hate? It's when he sees the pride in his father's eyes when he spews out the same venom that he's heard from his father hundreds of times. How does a kid become a perfectionist that lives in in constant fear of failure? It's because the only glimpse of pride he's ever seen was after the perfect performance. And so now he's driven day after day to try to get it perfectly right, and he probably doesn't even know why. Probably can't even remember why it was. Or think about it on the other side. I mean, uh, think about the, uh, the power of the impact on a kid who has no one in his or her life that ever expresses pride about anything, who has never seen that delight in a parent's eyes or or an adult's eyes, that causes them to understand, this is who I am, this is what I am. Is there any surprise that such a kid would grow up looking for something, anything, that would give him or her validation? There's always a backstory in there. Don't you have a backstory in your life? Yeah, I know I do. Uh, I mean, I've got more than one. I'll tell you about one that just, just came to my mind. It, was, uh, it happened several years ago when I was at a uh, Wild at Heart boot camp with John Eldridge. Um, John started talking about wounds and the way they affect us. Now, I'm going to have to be vague here, not because I don't want to be transparent, but because the story involves other people and I don't have liberty to share their story. So I'm going to be vague, but let me just say in short that, you know, there was a session that we had where the Lord just began to to bring to the surface some old wounds that that were connected to feelings of deep insecurity and adequacy and especially the feeling of, that I had not, that I was not seen, feeling invisible. You ever felt invisible? Well, I can tell you that that was something I used to wrestle with a lot. In fact, I can remember as a young pastor uh, going to to pastors' meetings where there are a lot of other pastors around or, or or key leaders in the church, and walking into the room and and having the distinct feeling that no one saw me. Now, I don't even know it was true. Probably, maybe it was. But it doesn't matter if it's true or not because the feeling of it was so strong that it just fed deeply into those feelings of insecurity and the feelings of invisibility. Well, John's talking about all this stuff and and, and the Lord just kind of starts bringing this to the surface. Well, after the session, we go back to our cabins and I'm sitting there and I'm journaling and I, I write all the things I'm wrestling with and I finally go to sleep. The next morning, I get up and go to breakfast. And I sit down at a table with several people from Columbus that I do know. But there's an empty seat right next to me. And somebody comes up and sits down in the seat next to me. And I immediately engaged in conversation, introduced myself, explained that I was from Columbus. And this guy says, oh, wow, I spent some time in Columbus many years ago. And so we we chatted for just a second. And then I turned to introduce him to the other people at the table. And the guy sitting right next to me on my left, he was on my right. The guy on my left was also a pastor. And and when I introduced the two of them, all of a sudden, they connected and and, and got into this long, deep conversation. That I I gave my word. It went 15 minutes. And they were literally talking through me. They never looked at me, much less acknowledged my presence in any way. And I'm sitting there almost laughing at how such a thing could happen the very morning after I'm wrestling with these feelings of inadequacy and invisibility, right? Uh, at some point, this guy turns to the other pastor speaking through me and says, you know what, in a very prophetic term, tone, he said to the guy, he said, you know what, you are the man for Columbus, you are the man for Columbus. Well, now I got the pastor, who is a great friend of mine, uh, immediately deferred and said, well, he's a, he's, a, he's a man too. And um, I don't remember exactly what the guy said, but it was something like, yeah, whatever. Uh, <laughs> now, I'm not telling you that because I was in some kind of competitive nature with this other pastor. I mean, I truly had nothing. None of that was a part of the picture. I I love this guy. I wanted him to thrive in every way. I'm telling you this story because I want to let you know that uh, the enemy knows your backstory. He knows your backstory better than you do. And I can assure you that every time he gets a chance, he is going to stick his finger in there and twist and bring as much pain as he possibly can. But can I also tell you that God knows your backstory. God knows your backstory too, and what Satan means for evil, God means for good. And I can tell you that there was a moment there where I was just—I I just—I cannot believe this is happening. And yet, God used that moment to take the next three or four hours. To do a deep work of healing in my soul that I desperately needed. There was a backstory in my life that was uh, driving me that I wasn't even fully aware of. What about you? I mean, what, what's your backstory? Are there things that happen to you that can just set you off? That can cause you to react in ways that you don't even understand? The people around you, can't seem to understand, seem to feel that are extreme or out of proportion. Um, Maybe it's the, the very thing that we're talking about here this morning. I mean, unforgiveness has got to be one of the most powerful backstories, powerful in a destructive way that I know. I mean, that's why Scripture says so many times in the New Testament, your God has freely forgiven you. Therefore, freely forgive those who've sinned against you. He's not telling you to let them off the hook. What he's saying is, my son, who gave his life on the cross, died for your sins and theirs, and he died to deal with all of the effects of that sin. Not just yours, but theirs. Some of us are, are letting our backstory kill us the same way Haman's killed him you do know that Haman ends up hanging on the very gallows that he built for Mordecai right that's the rest of the story Haman ends up you'll hear the rest of that in the next few weeks but Haman ends up dying on the very gallows that he had made for Mordecai can I tell you that's one of the most graphic pictures I know of the effects of unforgiveness you hold unforgiveness, you determine in your heart that you're going to hang that person somehow, one way or another, and you will discover at some point that you're the one hanging. It's destroying you, not them. Maybe it's trying to please someone that is unpleasable. Maybe it's trying to to prove yourself to someone who is convinced that you would never amount to anything. Maybe it's a failure in the past that still haunts you. Hey, backstories are unlimited in nature. It could be almost anything, these backstories. The question is, what are you doing with the backstory? Are you Are you letting God come in to redeem it, to use it for good? Are you clinging to it with all your might, even though it's killing you? I want to ask you, if you will, just to bow your heads for a moment. Just, just, we're going to take a a few moments here, uh, because I I don't want us to to rush through this. I just want you to bow your heads for a moment, and I want you. I want to ask this question: Is there anyone here this morning that would say, Pastor, I already know what it is. There is a backstory in my life, and it affects me on a regular basis. And I need you to pray for me. Would you just lift your hands right, right where you are. Just lift your hand and acknowledge that there's a backstory that you know full well. You know all the details of it. You know exactly what it is. Father, I want to pray right now for those who just raise their hands. I pray in Jesus' name that you would come. That you would reveal not to their minds but to their souls. That you saw what happened. You are not blind. You are not uncaring. And you have chosen perhaps to make this moment the moment of healing. Father, I pray that you would just step into every story. You know each one in detail. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring your comforter, the Holy Spirit, uh, to come alongside each one to give revelation of your light, revelation of your love, revelation of just how powerful your grace truly is, and that you will begin to rewrite that story in a way that brings life and not death. And now, let me ask you this: you can you can lower your hands. Let me ask you if there's anyone here this morning that would say, "I, I don't know what my backstory is, but I know there's something." Because something's driving me, something is affecting me in ways that I don't even understand. And so you would say to me, Pastor, just raise your hands if that's you. Pastor, just ask God to reveal what that backstory is or to set me free from it, whatever it may be. And Father, I want to pray right now for those individuals. Lord, I thank you that there is nothing that escapes your attention. You know full well what that backstory is. And I want to pray right now in Jesus' name that you would come to each one who has his hand or her hand raised. And Lord, if it's right and good, that you would reveal it. Even as I'm praying, Lord, that, that you would just bring it into the light. That there would be a, a sudden memory of something. Maybe not an event, but a pattern. But something It has been stewing in your soul for years. Lord, just bring it into light. Expose it so that the healing can begin. And now you can lower your hands. I'd like to ask one last question. If there is just anyone here this morning that would acknowledge my backstory has kept me from God. My backstory has made it impossible for me to let God into my life. Because I've been blaming God. I've been mad at God for years for allowing the backstory to happen.